Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Second Peter chapter 3. You know what's interesting about Peter's epistle is that he knows your co-workers and he knows your neighbors and he might even know some of your family and he's going to talk about them here in this letter. And you go, wait a minute, Peter, he's been gone, right? Dead and gone for 2,000 plus years. How does he know my neighbor? You'll see he knows them. So Peter here in chapter 3, verse 1, he gives us the reason for both of the epistles that Peter penned. He gives them a reason why he wrote them. And so verse 1, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which... I stir up pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, apostles of the Lord and Savior. Um, So Peter's purpose in writing both of these epistles was, as he puts it, to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Uh, What he means by... uh, stirring up their pure minds, um, it wasn't as if they had turned away from the gospel and, and that they were in error. They weren't. But Peter knew that it was possible that they could lose sight of the truth of scriptures. They could go, you know, they could drift. And I, I know that in my own life, if I'm not careful, I can drift. It, it's true for all of us as believers. And so he wants to remind them about the words of Scripture. And, of course, he talks about the prophets. And he's, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures and the teachings. Or he says the commandments of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And, and so he's speaking about the words of the prophecies, the words of the Old Testament, and the teachings of the words of the New Testament, which the New Testament were written at. I mean, it wasn't the New Testament at the time of, of Peter's epistle. At this time, the teachings, the, the apostles were teaching and they were, they were sharing the teaching among these different churches and they were passing letters back and forth. And these letters end up comprising the, the New Testament as you and I have it today. Uh, basically, he's telling them to, to, uh, to remind them. He wants to remind them about the words of Scripture. Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So knowing this first, this is the first, this is the most important thing he wants them to keep in remembrance, is that, and again, he's speaking about your neighbors and your co-workers and maybe some family members, scoffers will come in the last days. Well, you know... Again, this was penned about 2,000 years ago, and he was speaking about in the last days. Well, we have to ask ourselves, are we living in the last days? I could probably go take a poll of you in the room here, and I'm sure most of you would say, yeah, we're definitely living in the last days. Maybe some of you would say, no, I'm not 100% convinced that we're in the last days. Well, let me ask you this. Are there scoffers around? And uh, definitely, I mean, probably more than you can count. There are scoffers who reject the Scriptures, and they mock those who hold to them. And we're seeing that more and more in our culture, that people that have, you know, stick to a fundamentalist view of Scriptures, that they believe the Word of God as it was written, 
that we are becoming, becoming more and more marginalized and we're being mocked. And so they're scoffers who ridicule uh, believers who stick to a, to a literal translation of the Bible. Not only that, but there are scoffers who ridicule those who believe in Christ's second coming. And, you know, you might have a neighbor, a friend, or a coworker that fits right into this category. And so Peter's talking about them. Uh, and uh, Peter describes that these scoffers are walking according to their own lusts. Uh, they live their lives according to their sinful appetites of their flesh, is what he's referring to. And, uh, you know, not only will these scoffers in the last days have an intellectual objection about the Scriptures and Christ's second coming, but it goes deeper than that. They have a moral objection. And the reason why is because they're walking according to their own lust. They're walking according to their own will, what they, own, what they want to do. And uh, to have to admit that there's, there's a God who's coming back, who's going to judge the world, and uh, that the Scriptures are true, that means that they have to answer for the way that they've lived their lives. And so there's, they've got skin in the game. And so there's a reason why they, they object to, you know, they, they, they mock Christ's second coming and they mock those who believe in scriptures because if they were to admit that, yeah, you're true, you're right, then all of a sudden it's like, well, now I gotta, now I gotta kinda deal with, come to grips with how I respond to that. How do I live my life in response to that? Well, you know, this talk about scoffers, do you think that describes the days we're living in? And I would say yes, uh, because we're seeing more and more of a moral relativism, right? Even within, even within churches, uh, you know, there's people that say that there's no one culture or there's no one religion that's right or wrong. And because no one is right or wrong, we need not only to tolerate each other, but we need to accept each other's behavior. And that's getting foisted on us more and more uh, all the time. So next time you and I encounter a scoffer, um, you've got a perfect thing to tell them. You can tell them that they themselves validate scriptures because they were prophesied in the Bible. They start scoffing, you know, mocking. You go, well, hey, man, you just proved my point. And you can take them right here to Second Peter chapter 3. Look at you're in here. And see how they respond to that. <laughs> So what are these scoffers' argument? Well, first of all, they say, where is the promise of His coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Their argument basically is, you Christians have been talking about Christ's second coming for 2,000 years, and He hasn't come yet. He still hasn't showed up. And everything basically continues just as it always has been since the beginning of earth's history. There's a theory, and that's referred to. It's it's known as uniformitarianism. That's what that's what that's talking about. And of course, my greatest source for knowledge is Wikipedia. So take it take it as it goes. But here's Wikipedia's definition of uniformitarianism. It's the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in the universe now have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. It has included the gradualistic concept that the present is the key to the past and is functioning at the same rates. Uniformitarianism has been a key principle of geology and virtually all fields of science. But naturalism's modern uh, geologists, while accepting that geology has occurred across deep time, no longer hold to a strict 
gradualism. Okay, that's kind of starting to go over my head there. But um, basically, uniformitarianism influenced Charles Darwin, who envisioned evolution as biological uniformitarianism. Gradual changes over a long period of time. Uh, His argument was that evolution took place from one generation to the next before our own, our very own eyes. But basically it was so small that you couldn't perceive those changes. And so it would take millions. Well, when, when I was in school, I, mean, I don't know, you know, it, from what I remember in the textbooks, when they talked about evolution, they still called it a theory back then. I remember that, the theory of evolution. And they also said it took, you know, millions of years. The dinosaurs were on millions of years. And, you know, as they've been kind of confronted with different things, now it's like, well, billions of years. So now we're talking billions of years. But I think when I was a kid, if I remember, it was millions of years. And so we've gained a few years in there. Um, but Peter here says that these scoffers are wrong. Look at verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. So he says these scoffers willfully forget. You know, there's basically, I mean, it's it's a choice that they've made. Uh, You know... uh, there's some certain laws of science, and I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to try to impress you, but um, you know, the laws of probabilities and the laws of thermodynamics pretty much stand, they fly in the face of evolution or the theory of evolution. But see, people choose to ignore the truth of God's scriptures. And so Peter says here, by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And of course, the scripture teaches us that God created the heavens and the universe that we live in by the word of his mouth, right? Genesis 1. And also John 1 speaks of it as well. Listen to this verse here in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke... And it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now, the scientific community would like to you to believe that no one of any real intelligence, I mean, really believes in uh, creation, the creation narrative as we have it in the book of Genesis uh, for Earth's history or Earth's origin. But, you know, the truth is there are many scientists Many scientists from all scientific disciplines who reject evolutionary theory as false and they accept the biblical account of creation based upon research in their particular field of study. But those scientists, you probably don't hear of them, and the reason why is because they've been censored and they've been pressured into science. There are some scientists, though, that have uh, come together under the umbrella or they've joined the the, uh, uh, institute Institute for Creation Research, ICR. And uh, that was started by uh, Dr. Henry Madison Moores. Anyways, that that whole group, they they live in in, uh, Dallas, Texas, or their their headquarters is in Dallas, Texas. And actually, just this week, the Dallas Morning News had an article on the Institute for Creation Research. And uh, it was on August 18th. 
I guess is today August 18th? Wow, it's really current. <laughs> Maybe it's, it's tomorrow's article. I thought it said August 18th, but it's really current. Um, <laughs> it's prophetic. Um, it says here, the title is, Dallas Researchers Out to Scientifically Prove Biblical Version of Creation. And it's a long article, but I want to quote one part of it. And it's basically one of the, one of the heads of this Institute for Creation Research. So scientists who sign on with ICR, Institute for Creation Research, know there is no turning back. They'll probably never be hired again to work in academia or at a government-sponsored lab. Jason Lyle, an astrophysicist and the research director at ICR, said he has no chance of winning a Nobel Prize, even if he makes a groundbreaking discovery. Secular scientists, he said, would never bestow the highest honor, the field's highest honor, on a creationist. So they're being silenced. They're being censored. So you're not going to hear them in the mainstream, you know, in, in, in general. Um, but they're out there. And Peter says that these scoffers, they, will, they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. What Peter is referring to here is day two and day three of creation. I'm going to read it to you out of Genesis 1 verse 6. It says, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, now we get to day three. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land uh, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So if you can picture what, what's being described here, there's this water that was above the firmament, right? Above our direct atmosphere. Um, and it was probably, scientists believe it was probably a vapor canopy, kind of like a great cloud that basically enveloped the entire planet, and it's referred to as the greenhouse effect. And what's interesting about that is that would produce mild tropical global climate all the way around the planet. Um, and again, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of they've they've discovered like woolly mammoth, you know, fossils and stuff that have like grass or flowers in their digestive or what was their digestive tract up in like the tundra, the frozen tundra up north. And it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Well, it would make sense if there was a global tropical-like greenhouse where everything you know, was, was mild. Um, and if you think about it, uh, that canopy, that, that vapor that was above the, the firmament there would also filter out any harmful rays from the sun. And so uh, you know, dinosaurs could grow very large. Uh, people could grow very old. You look at the biblical account, and we have the account of people living hundreds and hundreds of years um, before the flood. And then Peter is referring here to what geologically occurred during the flood. And I'm going to jump down to Genesis chapter 7, 11. And uh, it says here, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, uh, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, 
and the windows of heaven were opened. And so you have this, this, these, this water that was under the earth coming up, and then you have this, this the, it says the windows of heaven, that, that canopy somehow condensing, and you have all this rain um, occurring and flooding the world. And it says the world that then existed perished in the flood. And if you think about it, the geography of the world as people knew it in Noah's day was drastically altered by that one worldwide cataclysmic event that we know in the Bible as the flood. And again, that's in direct contrast to uniformitarianism. The world hasn't been the same, you know, but just gradually changed. There's been a major cataclysmic change that occurred in Earth's history. And uh, Peter's point here is that the heavens and the earth were created by the word of God. And uh, the world as people knew it in Noah's day was destroyed by water, again, by the word of God. But he says here, 2 Peter 3, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of God, ungodly men. So the world as you and I know it has not existed as this for billions of years. Uh, merely in the Institute for Creation Research, Science Research, ICR, um, they think 6,000 to 10,000 years. And if you actually take the history and you go through the Bible and you read the lineages of Adam to, to, uh, to Jesus, you, you look at their dates and how long they lived, you come up with roughly about 6,000 years. Um, uh, and so, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I, I believe in, an earth, in a young earth. I believe that the earth is only about 6,000 years old, maybe, maybe 10,000, I don't know, but at least 6,000. And it says here that this world that you and I live in and know, as we see it today, it's preserved by that same word. Um, you know, in other words, God is holding off judgment and keeping things as they are by his world, by his word, excuse me. But this, but right now the world is being reserved for fire. Before it was changed by flood, now it's going to be changed by fire. And uh, and to mock, or excuse me, to answer those who mock the the promise of Christ's second coming. Look at verse eight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing: that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the reason why the Bible says that Jesus hasn't returned, you go, man, it's been 2,000 years. Christians are always talking about Jesus is coming back, and they mock it. Well, the reason why, Peter says, is because God is patient and he's not wanting anyone to perish in their sins. Think about your own life. Aren't you glad that the Lord did not come back, did not return before you had a chance to surrender your life to him? I'm thankful. You know, in our economy, Jesus has not returned in 2,000 years. But in God's economy, a day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is as a day. And if Jesus has been gone for about 2,000 years, that's about two days in God's economy. So basically, he's only been gone the weekend. <laughs> and he'll be here Monday morning, you know. And, and I think we're Sunday night. I think that's where we are in, uh, in a timeline. 
verse th- uh, 10. Look at this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So this day of the Lord, it's not just a 24-hour day that Peter is talking about here, but it's basically the time of the Lord's return. There's phases to it. The first phase of the day of the Lord is the sudden and unexpected rapture of the church. We have scriptures, I don't have them written here, but there's scriptures that speak about that. But the day of the Lord is going to continue through the seven-year tribulation judgment on earth. And it will continue through the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And it will terminate at the end of the millennium when the heavens and the earth, as you and I know it, are going to pass away with what sounds like some sort of atomic nuclear event when uh, the elements will melt with fervent heat. You know, it's interesting. You, you know, a lot of people don't take the Bible and use it as a science book. But then again, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that contradicts science. And what's interesting about this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes that Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And that word consist means adhere to or, or held together. So Paul says in Colossians, all things are held together by Jesus. In Him all things consist are held together. It's interesting. I was an electronic technician, so I had to study this stuff. But Coulomb's Law of Electricity says that like charges repel. And you guys know that if you have a magnet, right? Two magnets, the pluses, you can't try as you might. You can't get them together because they're like charges. They repel. But opposite charges, boom, you can, you know, it's hard to separate them. They, they, they uh, attract each other. But like charges repel. But However, what's interesting about that law of electricity is when you get down to the atomic level, the nucleus of an atom is made up of positively charged protons, and uh, they're stuck together. And Coulomb's law doesn't seem to apply in that. So it's like, what holds them together? Because like charges are supposed to repel, and yet these like charges, the protons, they're stuck together. And scientists don't have an answer for this. They say it's some kind of a cosmic glue that's holding it together. It's like there's, there's, there's a phenomenon they really don't understand yet. What holds them together? And, and Paul knew what it was. They just had to ask him. It's Jesus Christ. In him, all things are adhered to. All things are stuck together. And so um, what Peter is describing, when all these things, these elements are going to dissolve and melt with a great roar, you know, this heat and this great roar, I think basically at that point, Jesus' word is going to be, okay, that's it. Let go. And that's, that's when you get this great, tremendous, tremendous roar. The Bible talks about noise. Tremendous heat. And says the elements are going to dissolve. They're going to melt. You know, uh, maybe a hundred years ago, about a hundred years ago or so, you know, people reading this go, man, that's kind of like science fiction. But, you know, ever since World War II with the atomic bomb, you know, dropped on Hiroshima and all the other stuff that's happened since then, we know that's like, wow, we could see something like this happening. We can understand kind of the, 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 the theories and the, the, the mechanisms behind something like this. Verse 11, therefore, so based on all this stuff that Peter has said, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons 
ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So if you and I know that we're living in the last days, and we look, you know, these scoffers, there's definitely scoffers around, um, as Peter prophesied. And if we know that the world of Noah's day was totally transformed by the flood, and if we know that the world of our day will be totally transformed by fire, as Peter says, well, how do we respond to that? How do we live our lives today? You know, does this have an impact on us? And Peter says, yes, it should. We should be looking for the coming day of God. I want to read to you this here. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Paul writes this, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So for you and I as believers, we should be looking for the coming day of the Lord. And if you're like me, you start reading the news, you start reading what's happening, you go, boy, I tell you what, we're seeing prophecy being fulfilled. And so we should be looking, we should be looking at that, and you know, so we see the signs of the times around us. We see where the direction our culture is going. We even see how uh, people who call themselves Christians, you know, we see how there's this, there's this falling away from, from the truth of Scriptures. And there's a denying of, of basic elements of Scriptures. We see all these things taking place. And so uh, you and I, it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be caught off guard that Jesus is returning soon. And we should be living our lives, right, in response to that, in anticipation of that. But Peter says something else here. Peter says that we should be hastening the coming of the day of God. You go, wait a minute, God's sovereign. What do you mean hastening? How can we affect God's timing? Well, for some reason, God is sovereign. The Bible teaches that. But he allows you and I to participate in his plans. And so Peter says we should be hastening the coming of the day of God. How should we be hastening? How do we do that? Well, basically, focusing our time and our energy to seeing people coming to faith in Christ, right? Being witnesses in the world around us and discipling people as they grow in Christ. Remember what Jesus or what Peter said, Jesus is just holding off. He's not wanting anyone to perish but to all to come to repentance. And so there are people that, that the reason why he hasn't returned yet, there's still people that Jesus wants to reach. Maybe you're here today and Jesus wants to reach you. And that's why he's holding off coming. Would you get saved? Accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that, man, we can get out of here. I'm waiting for it. Um, but seriously, um, that's what Peter is teaching here. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this new heavens and this new earth, there will be no sin, there will be no death, 
there'll be no decay in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, there won't even be a fossil record. You know, if you think about it, the, the, one of the, I was reading that article and they were talking about how, you know, the, the, the creationists, as they're called, um, and the other scientists, evolutionists, they all have the same data. It's not like certain, they have certain data. Those, they all have the exact same data. They have the fossil records. They have the sedimentary layers. They have all that. The, the data is the same. It depends on how they interpret the data, how they view the data. That's what makes the difference. And, uh, you know, uh, the scienti- scientific community, they look at the fossil record and they look at sedimentary record, you know, layers and all that stuff. And they, they interpret that data and they say the earth is very, very old. And they base it on, you know, whatever they're basing it on. The creationists look at that. They see the fossil record. They see the, the sedimentary layer. And they say, there's evidence of a flood. And, and, and the earth isn't old. It's just there's evidence of a flood. Um, and so it's interesting. There's a fossil record today. And I, I kind of wonder if the fossil record is not there only basically as a testimony to mankind that God did destroy the earth with a flood. And, and, you know, depending on how people interpret it, and they, they, they reject the, the, the biblical record, and so they're looking for another, another explanation. And I think that's going to stand in stark testimony against them. However, this new heavens and this new earth, there's not even going to be a fossil record. There's going to be nothing of corruption, nothing of death. There's going to be no evidence of that anymore. And so, verse 14, as a result of all this that Peter is talking about, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Be diligent. It means do not delay. Make every effort to be found in him. What does it mean to be found in him? Philippians 3 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Having a righteousness that's not based on anything that I do, but a righteousness that's based on what Jesus Christ has done for me, being found in him. And to be found in him in peace. And of course, we're speaking about peace with God. And it's only possible through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way you will have peace with God. There is no other way. Not only peace with God, but peace with fellow man. Look at Matthew 5.9. says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So not only, you know, we enter into a relationship with God, we have peace through Jesus Christ, but now we're to have peace with our neighbors, peace with our family members, peace with uh, our, our fellow men, fellow women, mankind, basically. And then peace with the circumstance you find yourself in. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Have you ever been around somebody who's just peaceful? They're full of peace. It's so refreshing. And you and I, we know the end story. We know, we know that Jesus Christ is returning soon. 
we know if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that we are we will be found in him without spot or blemish because God will look at us and he'll see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins and we won't it's not our righteousness it's Christ's righteousness so we're found in him so so we know we have eternal life because you know we've been saved from our sins and and we know we know that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming so you know you can get really tied up with the things of this world but boy to just have a peace about you know what yeah right now there's things that are chaotic in my life but you know what god's in control and and just to have that peace what a wonderful thing and so be found in him in peace do not delay Make every effort to be without spot and blameless. And the only way you and I are going to be able to live in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where there's no sin, no corruption, is if we are righteous. And again, that only comes through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross by paying the price for our sins. Verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So that waiting, you know, sometimes, and I'll be honest with you, there's been a few times, when I was younger, I I don't think I, in fact, I know I used to not say, oh, I wish Jesus would come back soon. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of life I want to experience, you know. Want to marry my wife? Want to have children? Want to get a home? You know, there's things. It's like, you know, I'd like to live life a little bit before Jesus returns. But you know, I'm ready <laughs> now. It's like, Lord, you can come back anytime. I'm I'm ready for you. Uh, I'd I'd love for you to return anytime. But the fact that he hasn't, the fact that he's holding off, is because he's wanting to reach more and more people for his kingdom. And so that long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And uh, this judgment or this delay is not that 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 you know God's not coming to to judge the world, but it's proof that He desires that all should be saved. Verse sixteen. So now Paul or Peter is talking about Paul. He says, "Is also back in verse fifteen. Is also." Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. Uh, You know, I'm glad Peter said that. I'm glad Peter said, you know, Paul writes some things that are really hard to understand. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm right there with Peter. Sometimes I read some of Paul's stuff and I go, wow, that's just like way over my head. And uh, Peter felt that way too. Um, But he says, untaught and unstable people twist that to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. The word twist is the Greek word meaning to torture language in a false sense. And I don't know if you ever heard anybody taking scriptures and totally taking it out of context to fit whatever they're trying to say. And they, they, they take words of the Lord or just words of scripture and they just they just really torture the scripture to get it to make a point. And uh, it's painful when you when you hear about that, but people do that, and uh, it happens a lot. Uh, verse seventeen: You therefore, beloved, but that's other people. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfast uh, steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. You know that belief affects behavior. 
Um, if I believe that that chair right there in the middle there, that third and the one right there, if I believe that that chair is going to support my weight, I'll sit on it. If I'm looking at it and I go, you know what, I don't think that's going to hold my weight, I guarantee I'm not going to sit on it. My belief affects my behavior. But behavior can also affect belief. See, if I'm not careful, I can fall into carnal behavior as a Christian. I can fall into a sinful lifestyle. I can fall into to, uh, to, uh, you know, certain you know, things of the flesh. And eventually, I'll adjust my belief to justify my sin. And so I need to be careful. We need to be careful about it because uh, behavior can also affect our belief. And that's why Paul says, Beware, or Peter, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away uh, with the error of the wicked. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Notice that Paul, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul. He wrote most of the Bible, so it's pretty safe to say Paul. But this is Peter's letter. Notice that Peter doesn't say grow in devotion or grow in zeal, or grow in holiness. The only thing he says is just grow in grace. I love that. Grow in grace. The Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Grace is unmerited favor. An acronym for it is G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We 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 didn't earn salvation. We didn't earn God's love for us. God loved us because of His grace. It's entirely His unmerited favor that saved us. And it's His unmerited favor or His grace that causes us to serve Him zealously, that causes us to be devoted to Him, that causes us to strive for holiness. It's basically out of love for Him. You know, I, I love that in, you know, in a marriage relationship. You know, you build your relationship you, you know, you, you don't go sleeping with other people. You don't go, you know, disappearing and, and just, uh, you know, abandoning your family. You go for months, you know, I'm going on a road trip. I'll be gone in three months. I'll see you later. You know, you don't, you don't do that when you're in a marriage because you love that person. And so you're devoted to them. You're zealous for them. Um, you want to you want to please them. And uh, it's basically all out of love. And, and that's the same relationship that God wants with you and I. To love to respond to him out of grace and not out of out of some kind of legality. So grow in grace. Um, you know, respond to God's grace in your life. And I would add also respond with God's grace to others in your life. Because when remember uh, a couple of chapters ago where Peter was saying that uh, you know. Um, Forgive as you've been forgiven. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking Paul actually in Ephesians. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And, 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 and here, extend grace as you've had grace extended to you. And so grow in that grace. And then finally grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, uh, just growing in that relationship. Spending time, you know, you think about this, and then Peter ends this with, To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Remember, this is Peter's last epistle that he wanted to convey to the church. These are what was on Peter's heart. A warning. A warning that people wouldn't drift away from their steadfastness in the faith. That they wouldn't, they wouldn't twist, you know, follow some of the twisted scriptures and, and be found in error. 
um, and to realize that, that you know, there's going to be scoffers coming. People are going to mock you for your belief. They're going to mock you uh, for taking the Bible literally. But this is what Peter wanted to convey to the church. And this was his last epistle. What happened to Peter? Well, Scriptures doesn't tell us, but church history has a lot of information or some information about him. Basically, it's believed that Peter was martyred in Rome by Nero, Emperor Nero. And it was around the same time that the Apostle Paul was. And all church historians agree that Peter was crucified. But Origen states that Peter felt so unworthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was on a cross. They were going to crucify him. So he said, can you crucify me upside down? And they granted his request. And so Peter was martyred for the Lord, crucified upside down according to Origen. But that's generally accepted in church history. But this is a man who, you know, a gruff fisherman who uh, at first, you know, he just had a hard time understanding, a hard time believing. Uh, He had some moments where he, he, uh, you know, doubted. Um, He had some moments of fear where he acted in in a cowardly way. But God took this person's life and totally transformed him, and he became one of the pillars of the early church. And, And these are the words that he's conveying to you and I today. So that's... Uh, we just finished First and Second Peter, and uh, next week we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament. I've been kind of waiting to do this, but I kind of want to just don't be an Old Testament only guy. But I've been pretty excited about it. We're going to be in the Book of Daniel uh, next week, and so again, uh, as we dig into that book, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to be able to pick up a newspaper and go wow, or pick up a history book and 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 see how scriptures is true. God's word is true, and and uh, and uh, we'll see how things have been fulfilled, and and look at how things are going to be fulfilled. And I believe in the very near future.